In every job that must be done, there is an element of fun. Fun, 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 fun. Light speed to the wondrous and wonderful. Cover is not the book, so open it up and take a look. Ah, if it isn't the only bookworm in town. What's that word again? Inspired. Might solve a mystery or rewrite history. This is the story we needed to write as we kept out of sight for no I have to sing. I have to play. The music, it's, it's not just in me. It is me. We're happier when you don't sing. Welcome to Notably Disney your ultimate podcast covering Disney music and books. I'm Brett Nackman, your host. Here we dig a little deeper and explore the great wide somewhere about everything under the Walt Disney Company umbrella as it pertains to tunes and writing, from the theme parks and television screens to the Broadway stage and the silver screen, if it relates to anything Disney songs, soundtracks, books, articles, or other things that you can listen to, or read about involving Disney, we'll examine it here. Back in 2020, orchestrator and composer Jeff Kricka joined me on Notably Disney to discuss his early career in the music industry and developing the wonderful score for perhaps one of the best Disney documentaries developed to date, um, in my opinion, uh, The Imagineering Story, which was a Disney Plus original that debuted with the launch of the streaming service And in the years since, Jeff has been quite busy orchestrating a number of films and series for the Walt Disney Company from Marvel Studios' Spider-Man No Way Home and Werewolf by Night to Pixar's Lightyear and Disney's Hocus Pocus 2. Additionally, his orchestrations have been heard in the Disney theme parks and via live-to-picture concerts. Today, Jeff shares some reflections on a variety of those newer Disney projects and more. Uh, including some composing work as well. Uh, it's such a pleasure to have you back, Jeff. Yeah, thank you for having me back, Brett. Yeah, a lot, quite a lot has happened since we last spoke five years ago, once uh, Imagineering Story finished, and looking forward to diving into it all with you. Yeah, well, and I thought that would maybe be a, a nice place to start off, um, because it was the centerpiece of our conversation, and it was a really, I mean, from a from an outsider standpoint, it seems like it was a a pivotal moment maybe in, in your career uh, to have to be composing a six-part miniseries um, that had a, a wonderful score. And at the time, I remember asking you, Jeff, I'm like, when is this score going to be released? Um, and I was so p- pleased when you reached out to me a few months later and said, it's live, it's on Apple, iTunes and whatnot. And um, But at that point, there wasn't a public release. What What has been the response since not only the release of the soundtrack, but as more folks over the years have been able to engage with the documentary and and your music for that matter. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for pushing for, you know, getting the soundtrack released. That was something that um, I had been inquiring about and I know a lot of people have been inquiring about and I'm so glad that we were able to make that happen. Um, Yeah, ever since Imagineering Story finished, 
it probably there's never more than a couple weeks that go by that I don't get an email from somebody somewhere saying, hey, I saw the Imagineering story. I thought the score that you wrote was great. And that's just so gratifying and, and nice to know that people out there, even still today, are discovering this series and, you know, trying to find out more about the people who helped create it. And that's just so nice to be able to see that and, and sort of live in that and experience that. So, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, it's just one of the most amazing projects I've ever had the opportunity to work on. And I'm so grateful that I was able to experience it. It was incredibly difficult, as we discussed, to work on um, a really great challenge, um, but a really fun one. So, yeah, thank you. I'm I'm glad that there's been a lot of uh, attention that has been placed toward it, and it makes me wonder too, as an artist, um, you know, as a musician, as someone who's deeply embedded in that world, do you ever revisit your work in terms of whether it be listening to the score in an isolated format or even the documentary, for that matter? I do. Yeah, I I like. Um... I mean, I'm not obsessively going back and watching watching it over and over, but um after the the series finished, um you know, you're you're working on it for you know, so many months and you're just sort of steeped in it. So it's it's sort of after that's done, you kind of want to get away from it and move on to other things. Um but it's it was really fun coming back to it uh, a couple of years later and rewatching it and sort of evaluating and thinking like, okay, this is, these are the decisions that I made about, you know, these various aspects of what we did. And I felt like I learned a lot, you know, looking back on it, would I have made the same decisions the second time or not? I'm not sure. Um, but overall it was really, I felt really positive about, you know, the, the work that I had done and, just really amazed that I was able to, to do all that. You know, it was, a, it was a huge amount of work, six episodes, lots of music that had to get written in a really short, condensed time span. So um, it was fun to revisit and sort of learn. And that's how I always sort of approach music in general is, is a learn a constant learning experience and, you know, learning to decide how I can sort of do things better the second time uh, and the third time and the fourth time. And probably that learning process just never stops. And if it did stop, I would probably, that'd be the end of my <laughs> career as a composer and orchestrator. I'm always learning new things and trying to figure out how to to do things better. Well, and, and speaking of revisiting, it's a, it's a documentary that I found to be really warrant multiple viewings. I've probably watched it in, in its entirety at least on three different occasions, because it's just as a Disney file, there's so much great content to pick up on. But also, um, I, I've watched them even out of order because they're just like each episode is a nice, like maybe decade or so time capsule of the, of imagineering at, at different stages, and um, mm -hmm. and, it's been, and it's been fun to to watch. Um, and I, and I think the overture is is still just fantastic and so um, I don't know invigorating. So I I think. It's nice that, like, whenever I hear it, I because I, you know, I, I'll I'll shuffle my playlist or whatever, and I'll occasionally hear that on there, and I'm like, yeah, that that gets me roused up and excited. So, 
Well, that's um, what we were trying to do. So that's good. <laughs> mission accomplished. Um, you know, Jeff, one of your um, one avenue of, of your work is working with uh, Michael Cicchino, um, mm -hmm. someone you've collaborated with in a number of different times over the years. And, and I'm wondering in what ways that's evolved because there have been new projects over the past few years, but I also know that relationship goes back well over a decade. How, might, how has that changed through re more recent projects and and just you know, just the notion of musicians collaborating and building those rapports? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, for those of you that don't know, I've been working with Michael Giacchino since 2010, I think was our first project. So our collaborations go back 14 years. Um, and when you've been working with somebody for that long, you start to generate, you know, a sense of a shorthand and, you know, this this sort of expectation of, you know, what working on a new project with them will be like. Um, there's there's less surprises going forward. So, um, yeah, I think the the one major thing that I think has sort of changed, aside from just you know working on projects with him during the pandemic, which is a whole story that we could get into, like what that process was like, where you literally couldn't be physically in person with the people that you're you know collaborating with and recording music with. Um, there was a lot of challenges that we had to address and figure out how how are we going to record the score for, say, Thor, Love and Thunder? Um, you know, when you have these restrictions about how many people you can have in a room and you still want this, you know, giant orchestral score that isn't, you know, obvious that you were recorded, you know, it was recorded under you know, these limitations that were imposed to us, you know, by the pandemic. So there's sort of that aspect that we had to, that challenge that we had to address, um, he and I and other composers that we, you know, that I collaborated with during the pandemic. Um, but also the the one other major thing that has changed with him lately is he started getting into um, directing quite a bit. Uh, with Werewolf by Night and a couple other projects that are in the mix right now. So he's still still composing projects. We just finished a project um, with him a couple weeks ago that we recorded uh, a new movie that's coming up later uh, this summer. So he's still doing composing projects, but he's also sort of venturing in, into directing, which is which really quite cool. So the, the big project of his that we worked on over the last, uh, I guess this was back, uh, a couple of years ago was Werewolf by Night that he directed. Um, and he also wrote the score for. So there you're working with him still as a composer, but also as as the director of the project, which is quite interesting and cool. So so there's a, a little bit there that we could get into, I suppose, with with what it's been like working with Michael. I suppose in terms of like the actual, you know, orchestration, um, if you watch the last podcast uh, that we did, um, I think I went into quite a bit of depth of you know what the orchestration process with him is like and and that hasn't changed so much in in newer projects we're still doing you know still trying to find you know new exciting ways of you know each score that he's writing is still you know it's not like it's a carbon copy of some previous score he's written there's still new challenges that we face um you know looking into like new types of music or new instruments maybe that we can add so that we're going to write and orchestrate a new score that's, you know, 
somewhat different than anything else he's done before. So there's still that that aspect of it. But yeah, I hope that that, that sort of answers that question. Then maybe we could go into different aspects of that. The the challenges of the pandemic uh, just alone are were quite interesting and, and daunting to sort of uh, undertake in terms of how you get a score recorded during the pandemic. Cause we did record quite a few scores uh, during that time. Yeah. In that spirit, it makes me wonder how, if you can't be in the same space or, or you don't have access to the, uh, to the same team or in, in the same uh, context, how you make adaptations on the fly, because Certainly Hollywood's stalled to some extent, but there were still, you know, projects in, in development, as, as you mm -hmm. alluded to. What what were some of the, the techniques and tools that you used to still foster a, a viable collaboration and honor the timelines that were presented to you both? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so the, the big difference was doing a lot of this scoring um, that we would usually do in person. We would instead do over Zoom. So um, this is still happening today, even actually. One of the great um, benefits, I suppose you could say, of the, the pandemic was the way sort of the world became a global community and we became much more closer in terms of being able to access each other online um, through mediums like Zoom. So if I'm scoring a project by Zoom, it's it's just like a regular Zoom conversation that you're having, except that on the other side of the Zoom window, rather than it just being one person, could be an ensemble, could be an orchestra. Um, and during the pandemic, we had limitations about the number of people that you could have in a room together at once just for safety concerns. So um, our orchestra sizes maybe got smaller, um, but we were able to sort of compensate for how we did it, perhaps by recording things in, in sections. So you would maybe just have the strings together as a group and you would just have the winds together as a group and you would just have the brass together as a group. This is how we scored, say, Lightyear, for instance, um, where we broke it up, I think, even into smaller groups, because I think we had sessions that were just percussion and just guitars. And um, so you're recording the score in layers. Um, but you still have maybe overall the same size of musicians, same same number of musicians that you would have if we hadn't scored it that way. It's just that you're recording it in sections and and sort of isolating layers. The real challenge of that is you're not really able to be flexible with making changes in the same way that you might be if you had everybody together at once. So um, say, if, you know, the way Michael likes to work, for instance, is he'll he'll hear everybody play everything, the entire orchestra, and um, maybe he'll want to make a change. Say you want to change a chord or something like, oh, I don't like that I wrote a C major chord here. I want to change this to a C minor chord, something like that, right? It needs needs to be a darker tone, perhaps, um, to make it fit the, the scene that I'm going for. So um, if you need to make that change and you don't realize that early on when you're recording the group separately, say you record the strings first and then they all go home and then you record the brass. And when you're recording the brass, if you've re realized, oh, I really want to change something here, 
well, you've already recorded the strings. You can't go back in time so easily and and make a change with them if, if you didn't make that change with them. Or on the other hand, if you did make a change with them, you're having to constantly keep track of the changes you did make with the previous group that you did. You know, it's, it's a whole organizational creative challenge that you have when you split everybody up like this. And you're not as easily to be, it's not as easy to be flexible um, with the changes that you normally make with them. You kind of are more locked into the decisions that you make early on with the first group that you record with. And you kind of have to follow through with that more or less with the other groups that you record with. Um, so hopefully that all makes sense. Although on the other hand, um, music editors, they love having things, you know, in sections. So because that allows them to more easily do a music edit and they can, you know, because you're isolating all these elements, um, doing if if the picture is changing, which it often is when you're working on a project, uh, your uh, the music editors are just great. I'm glad it's all separate. <laughs> I can I can make this edit work. So there there are benefits, and then there are uh, yeah there are things that make it more difficult when you're when you're recording things separately. Um, and today, and today, when you know you don't have these limitations for the number of people that you have in a room together, the the thing that did come out of the pandemic was that we were able now to go anywhere pretty much in the world and record an orchestra. So I'm maybe working on a project that's recording, say, in Vienna, like some of the 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 Disney Plus series that we worked on record in Vienna, and I'm not physically going to Vienna. Um, but we're able to set up a Zoom meeting and have the orchestra there on the other end of the Zoom window, and you're able to score remotely um, uh, that way. So that 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 is a benefit uh, that that came out of the pandemic. It still is better, I think, to be in the room together with the musicians if you can. But sometimes you have limitations from you know in terms of budget or schedule that that make it not possible. Fair enough. It seems like one consistent thread to what you were noting earlier is this idea of good documentation and organization matters, particularly if you're having to go back and make adaptations if you're recording different sections of the orchestra differently, for instance. Mm -hmm. uh, sounds like uh, that's where you just have to hone in on those skills so that you can keep everything in order. Yeah, exactly. It's a great, already a great organizational challenge to do projects just under normal circumstances. So to have these extra layers of complexity sort of thrown in, um, it made it quite difficult to, you know, like putting a puzzle together, a very, you know, many thousand piece puzzle together uh, during the pandemic. So um, I'm glad that a lot of that is is past us. <laughs> are, are there any scores that you've worked on um, over the past few years, whether it be with Michael and or others that you feel particularly proud of? Um, and I ask that from the standpoint of if one can even separate the film from the score. So sometimes some films are not as strong as the scores or vice versa, or sometimes they're both excellent. And Tomorrowland, I think, would be in that camp in my book. But uh, what, what are you particularly proud of in terms of what you've worked on? Yeah, I am really proud of a lot of the projects that we've done over the past few years, just in terms of the the score and sort of what came out of that. Um, I was really happy with how Werewolf by Night turned out. I thought it was an excellent score that that Michael wrote, and I'm really proud of the orchestrations that I've I did. Um, uh, other scores would be like Oh the Marvels by 
by Laura Cartman, a very different kind of score for a superhero movie than I think if, if those of you haven't haven't heard it, you should go listen to it because it still has a lot of the sort of the hallmarks of a, a sort of a, you know, your typical superhero score. But there's a lot of very new, distinct kinds of things that I think Laura was trying to do with that score that were really challenging, actually, in terms of orchestrating and a lot of layers. It's still very much um, in, if you know Laura's other music that she's written, it's still very much a score that has her style kind of stamped all over it, which I'm I'm really happy that that she was able to do that because I love her voice as a composer. She's somebody that I've worked with for a few years now, and I've I've known for quite a long time, even longer than Michael Giacchino. I, I studied with her um, while I was a student at, at UCLA. She taught a class that I I took, and I um, interned with her as an assistant back while I was a student. So um, I'm really grateful that I'm able to continue this this relationship and collaboration with her after all these years that I've known her. Um, but yeah, the the Marvels, uh, which we did last year that we completed, uh, that was an incredible score, I think, that she wrote. And one of the most challenging, I would say, scores that I've worked on as an orchestrator, just in terms of the um, the layering of the instrumentation, the, the different kinds of groups and sounds that she was able to get out of it. So um, I'm particularly proud of that. That that I, I watched uh, the Marvels last week and was um, listening to some of that earlier today. It almost has a uh, not only a worldly flavor but even an otherworldly flavor. <laughs> yeah, the, the vibe of the film too. Exactly what she was going for. She wanted wanted the the score to sort of feel like it was, um, you know, completely global in terms of influence in terms of styles of music that that are sort of you know kind of coming in there and 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 that's sort of reflecting i think the the themes of the film as well um what the filmmakers were going for um the sense of collaboration and sort of like you know the 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 parts are you know lesser than the sum of the whole sort of feeling that you get um uh, from from the way the characters interact and you know the different locations that they go to in, in that movie so yeah that was was quite fun to work on that score well and then you have the scene where everybody just sings which is <laughs> so I didn't even know how to fully interpret it Jeff I think maybe multiple viewings I'll, I'll be able to have a, a a fuller picture of it but that it seems like that also allowed for a lot of inventiveness not only in terms of thematically in the film but also um, the the orchestration in that was was quite unique too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and we had a giant orchestra for that that score. Um, one of the largest orchestras I think I've ever ever worked on it was, I think, like seven flutes and uh, five trumpets and twelve horns and a huge um, uh, percussion section and a, a very diverse kind of choir. Uh, a lot of different types of vocals and a lot of layering and different types of things that were going on in that score. So it was, was quite challenging and fun to kind of wrangle all the all those elements. Um, yeah, I've never never worked on anything like it, and I, I probably never will again. <laughs> well, you never know. I mean, based never on know. your interesting collaborations where a lot of the films are set in space and otherworldly environments. So <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> I, I think it lends itself to that. And it makes me think just from a 
I don't know, from a reflective standpoint, because certainly, you know, the so many of these scores are tethered to the films in which they're, um, you know, uh, you know, united. Uh, I don't know how better to put it. Um, but so, unfortunately, at times, some movies don't get as much attention as others in terms of their box office receipts, and 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 that's really unfortunate in terms of because they often may have great scores, but yet people aren't as accustomed to them. Yet it's through home home video and and home video in the outdated terms or other other media in which folks actually access um, the films and consequently the scores. How do you, as as an orchestrator and composer and working on projects that are both huge critical hits and others that maybe don't get as many eyes, how do you make sense of that in terms of um, your own development, but also in terms of making sure that people still access and rightfully so the the work that you all created yeah the whole landscape sort of changed during the pandemic the way you know content was was getting put out there so much of the projects so many of the projects that i work on go to streaming um rather than you know being released in theaters although a lot do get re released in theaters so it, it sort of it sort of depends you know project by project um but i'm still trying to you know each project I work on is, you know, precious to me. And um, I want to do the best possible job that I can, you know, whether I'm writing or orchestrating or whatever it is I'm doing, um, that I, you know, put, you know, 120% of myself into it and, and do the best possible work I can. Um, because you sort of don't really know, like, you know, when you're working on something, you know, how, how big it's going to, you know, really be, if it's going to be, you know, as successful as, you know, the, the filmmakers are hoping it's going to be, that's kind of like out of your hands when you're working on it. And you still just try to do the best you possibly can. I think back to, to like, you know, a lot of, you know, even, you know, decades ago projects that I, I really love that, you know, weren't as, you know, widely known and um, as, as, you know, critically acclaimed perhaps, um, and then become so much like, you know, cult, you know, cultural milestones that I, you know, would wish they would be, but I'm still really proud of them. You know, the, um, for instance, like, you know, Tomorrowland was, would be one or John Carter might be another, um, where I think that I really loved the, the movies and the projects and the scores and, um, I, it, it doesn't, you know, take away from them any bit for me that uh, they're not as it's, for me it's just not everybody's uh, discovered them yet perhaps <laughs> and uh, I also think back too to like you know great scores that were written for you know movies that maybe weren't so critically acclaimed you know I'm thinking of you know movies that maybe like Jerry Goldsmith scored um, where he still you know wrote incredible music even if the movie itself didn't do so well and uh, I, I still enjoy listening to his music and, and I still get a lot out of it, you know, regardless of, you know, how, how successful the, the project itself, um, was that, that he worked on. So. No, those are all fair points. And, and one thing that's, I think, really special, particularly within the realm of Disney movies is they have such longevity and they impact so many generations that, you know, movies that perhaps weren't huge hits when they were released ultimately cultivate uh you know audiences young viewers who turn into adults who then bring their kids to view them and engage with the music and this wasn't meant to be a segue but i think it fits naturally hocus pocus um 
debuted 30 years ago. Hocus Pocus 2 was a huge streaming success when it debuted a year and a half ago and uh, in which you're the orchestrator with composer John Debney. I had John on the podcast last year and it makes me think about, you know, your role, Jeff, where here you are entering a project that uh, is a, a brand, if you will, one that has so much love even if when the first debut, people didn't necessarily see in theaters, but everybody loved it. They clamored for a sequel. It happened. It was a great movie and a, a great uh, success on streaming. But you're in a position where, where this is this this has a vibe. This has uh, some familiar themes, and you're entering this space, and you have you want to carry on the legacy, bring new touches, follow John's direction. What was that like for you, given that? This is a space where you are not tethered to the original, but you're still carrying on that tradition. Yeah, that was another project that I worked on uh, over the pandemic that I'm really proud of because I am such a fan of the original movie and the score that John wrote for the original movie. And I grew up watching it and loving that movie and waiting for the sequel uh, like everybody else did. So it's sort of... Um, I keep having these experiences in my career where I'm able to work on a project uh, that meant a lot to me when I was younger and sort of growing as a young musician and composer. And uh, like, for instance, Jurassic Park is one of those, right? And then getting to work on the Jurassic World series with Michael Giacchino was, was like that for me. Um, so Hocus Pocus is also a lot like that for me, being such a big fan of the original and then getting to work on the sequel with the original composer, John Debney, um, was quite gratifying and, and amazing. So um, to work on that, I I definitely, I went back and I, I listened to the original score to make sure that I sort of was remembering all the things that I was, you know, sort of being nostalgic about that I remembered, you know, from my childhood, what that score was like, and making sure that I was honoring that in the right way with the orchestrations that I did for John. Um, yeah, that was quite fun and and quite challenging uh, because uh, it is a new movie and a new new story, but but it still has that that same kind of you know magical uh, fairy tale kind of and witch-like kind of music. It's hard to describe it as anything else but witch-like uh, kind of macabre sort of fun that, that that original score had. And to sort of try to do that again uh, with, with the sequel was, um, was, was, was really satisfying for me. Is there a particular track or portion of the score that really stands out to you in terms of your unique contributions and, and independent of or in tandem with John? Yeah, I think the the big one that I did was uh, one of the early scenes uh, when it's the flashback to um, uh, to the the old times with 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 the witches. Um, there's this big long shot of the the camera panning over the the forest, um, and so that was a, a cue that I I orchestrated, and it was quite fun because it was sweeping and big and and kind of uh, this this like I was describing before this sort of like. A uh, fairy tale, epic, but also macabre kind of witch-like music, which was was really fun to do. So um, if you go back and and you watch it and listen listen for that scene, because I'm really proud and happy with how that that turned out. That's really cool. And 
Yeah, and John seems like from, I've had him on twice on the podcast, he seems like the type of person who just not only genuinely loves what he does, but is a genuinely nice person. Oh, he's incredible. Yeah, I, I love you know, love John. And I, another composer that I've, you know, that I grew up listening to and just so grateful that I was able to meet later in life and actually collaborate with and, and work with. So, yeah, getting to work with him on Hocus Pocus was a dream come true. Well, and where do dreams come true but the Disney theme parks? This is my very basic attempt in trying to segue, but I was I was really uh, kind of amazed to think of how many uh, attractions you've been um, connected to in the Disney theme parks, um, but by virtue of um, some, some of Michael's work and, and the work that you created with him. And one of the newest efforts that just premiered, at least for those in China, is Zootopia Hot Pursuit at Shanghai Disneyland. What was it like for you to translate the music that you and Michael and colleagues crafted for that film into an attraction context? Yeah, that was really fun. Um, I always sort of feel like working on a theme park attraction is a little bit when it's attached to um, a, a movie like all of the ones that uh, that I worked on were it's always a little bit like doing a sequel to that movie because the idea that you're going for when you work on a, a ride is um, you're trying to create this overall environment and the Imagineers, they do this not just visually, but also sonically. So they're trying to immerse the guests in this feeling as though they are a part of uh the, the movie that that this attraction may be based on. So with Zootopia, definitely the idea was that we go back to the the style and instrumentation of the original Zootopia movie and basically sort of do like the sequel to that movie, which is what the the storyline of, of the attraction is. It's taking place after the the events of the movie and is sort of like the sequel story to um, to that movie. So it meant uh, going back and making sure we had a similar sort of instrumentation, um, bringing back and sort of quoting some of the old themes from the original movie, but also there's new themes, just like a sequel score would be. And yeah, you're you're giving the guests this feeling that um, that they're still sort of in the same world of Zootopia. And so, with the Zootopia score, the original score, we had a very diverse array of instrumentation in that score. It included things like Javanese gamelan. It included a lot of world percussion, a lot of Latin percussion. Um, that score is sort of an amalgam, kind of like the Marvels, actually. <laughs> A sort of an amalgam of uh, all different types of music from around the world and combining them in, in weird and unusual ways. And and the score for the attraction, Hot Pursuit, is, is very much like this because you have this sort of like jazzy 70s cop show kind of, you know, Henry Mancini's sort of vibe um, that you might get from like a 70s cop show score. And that's kind of infused with elements of, say, like, having the, the gamelan play a part in that too, which it never would have in 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 the 70s cop show kind of score. So you're you're creating this this really interesting sort of hybrid type score out of that. And and that was fun to do on the Zootopia movie. And it was equally fun to do that for the ride. Um, the other aspect that's 
maybe interesting to sort of consider for an attraction is a lot of these attractions have variable time components to them. So it's not like when you do a movie that everything's kind of locked in time musically and you know, every time you go back and watch that movie, it's going to be the same musical experience, more or less, because it's all locked in time. With an attraction, there's often a variability element that uh, you have to know how to be flexible with when you're scoring that attraction. So it's sort of a little bit like video game scoring, I would describe it like this, where maybe you're writing music so that there's a looping element that'll happen so that um the mechanics of the ride will trigger a loop to to repeat in a certain way. The music will repeat in a certain way if it needs to, if they need a little bit more time to let the guests move through a certain element or maybe less time. And so it moves, it knows how to move on to the next element in the same way a video game score will. And, uh, you know, the really kind of brain melting thing about it, um, an example I could describe for you is when I worked on the Incredicoaster because the Incredicoaster is a roller coaster and every single time guests ride the Incredicoaster because of the laws of physics it's different timing so and if you want to try to score the ride in a way that say like it's telling a story in the same way a movie would, where you see the various characters as you're riding through the ride and you want to hear Elastigirl's theme or Mr. Incredible's theme when you see those characters as you move through the ride or you want to try to score, say, like the loop-de-loop -loop <laughs> with a certain kind of you know music that's you know happening when you approach the loop, it needs to be timed right so that uh, that those element, those musical elements will happen in the right place when you're riding the ride. But how do you do that if the timing is just by the nature of physics going to be different every time you ride the ride, right? Like if you have a, uh, just to do extreme examples, if you have, say, a train filled with, you know, kindergartners on it versus a train filled with, say, a, a a football team, you know, <laughs> on it, it's going to, the weight difference is going to, is going to impact the timing of the ride or the wind, you know, one day is going to impact the timing of the ride. So how do you do that? It's, uh, it was incredibly challenging to think about how you would make this work. And the way we ended up doing it was recording the music in sections. And as you get to various important story points in the roller coaster here um you, you're gonna record that new section from that moment on and at the end of each section in case you need a little bit of extra time we created these little handlebar kind of bits of music that if the music needs a couple of extra seconds if the ride needs a couple of extra seconds to get through this element um, to reach the next one it has that variability kind of built into it so that when you get to that next element, it triggers it and it could happen at any, you know, couple of seconds within there. Um, so to make that the the timings and the mathematics of all that work was just really kind of hard for me to wrap my head around and make sure it would work in one instance as much as it would in another instance and not feel like it was jumpy or, um, 
yeah, that, that was that was a really fun challenge to <laughs> sort of wrap your brain around. All I have to say is I hope those kindergartners met the height requirement for Incredicoaster. <laughs> That's true. They they might not. I, I was trying to think of like of of low weight individuals on on the ride. <laughs> for sure. No, I know what you're getting at. And actually, it's it's. It, I appreciate you mentioned the notion of timing with attractions. I remember with um, I think it was when I was talking with Richard Bellis a few years ago um, when he was composing the score for um, the Indiana Jones Adventure at Disneyland and how. Um, how there were a lot of challenges with that by virtue of timing. I mm -hmm. also think about, uh, and one of the questions I was going to ask you um, in regards to attractions was, and I think you addressed this pretty well in terms of navigating a physical space um, and accounting for also too what happens if there's a breakdown on the attraction. And then sometimes there's underscore, but sometimes it's just the, depending on if it's like uh, on-ride audio versus in the room itself and having to account for, those distinctions as well. Yeah, that's always something that you're having to consider is where is the sound coming from and 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 making an immersive kind of space that that feels like, you know, that you're not as a guest maybe so noticing, you know, where everything's coming from, which is is a really fun element to play around with in in 3D space. So, uh a lot of times this this uh aspect will come into play when guests are moving through the queue of of the ride. So for instance with Zootopia Hot Pursuit the the way we did the queue music is all loop based music because you don't know if you're going to move through a various storytelling element of the queue very quickly or if it's going to be a long wait. So we wrote these really long um looping elements of music and they all play kind of in conjunction with each other. So um, if if you move through the queue really quickly, it won't. The music won't sound really uh, disjunct. It'll still sort of feel like you're having a complete sort of steady musical experience, um, but you'll just progress thematic wise through the music more quickly than you would if you're just staying in any one spot uh, longer. So that was really fun to sort of experiment with and play around with. And also like, yeah, when you're on the ride, if something does break down or you have to wait or pause in an element longer, um, for some reason, for instance, on the Incredicoaster, when you move into the launching element, um, it's this moment of anticipation, right? That before you get launched into the, into the roller coaster, into all the elements of the roller coaster, um, you're wanting to build up this tension and suspense, but maybe you're going to sit there for a little bit longer because of, you know, onloading, offloading that maybe is happening in the station or, you know, a train that's ahead of you taking longer to move through the, the elements of the ride. So we had to build in looping music that would happen where you're sustaining a suspenseful moment through a loop of the music um, that maybe could end sooner or last longer, depending on the nature of, you know, what's happening and the timing of each experience of the ride, just like doing a, a video game score. Yeah. Have you been out to Shanghai since its debut? I haven't. I really want to go visit Disneyland Shanghai, um, not just to, to ride Zootopia Hot Pursuit, but there's a lot of like the Pirates of the Caribbean ride there. It just looks incredible, incredibly fun. 
So I hope someday I do get a, a chance. Um, I have been to the other park that all the other attractions that I've worked on is Disney California Adventure. And I have been been there since uh, Incredicoaster opened and uh, a couple of the other rides that I've worked on is uh, they're all that that park. So I've been able to experience, which is is really fun because it's very different than experiencing a movie that I've worked on or a TV show that I've worked on. It's a little little different. <laughs> I, I was going to ask you what that experience is like, because the difference with an attraction, as anybody who's been to a Disney theme park can appreciate, is that you're you're literally immersed in an environment. You're encapsulated. And I think the attractions have only upped their game over uh, recent years. Like I was it, so I, I actually rode Web Slingers at mm -hmm. Disneyland Paris uh, last year before I did a California Adventure uh, last month. And what I love about that is like, I feel like I'm in Peter Parker's lab and, you know, I'm <laughs> hearing the familiar cues from uh, the scores that you worked on. What, what, what's the sentiment that you have, like, in, in experiencing an attraction for the first time that you're like, yeah, like, it's, I'm not seeing the end credits, but I know that's me. I know that's what all of our team members worked on together. That's how Imagineering is, right? It's like all the you know the the artistry and engineering that that goes into making attraction a lot of that is uh, sort of behind the curtain um from what the guests get to experience in a different way say than a, a film or tv show because you have the credits at the end of the the tv show um but that's really fun because you're you're getting to experience this sort of uh this cultural event uh, that's sort of been deemed important enough that that Disney is has built a, an attraction based on it, and you're experiencing this music that you've worked on with other guests, and you know millions of guests get to experience this. So it's it's just another way that I feel sort of gratified and and very thankful that I get to work on these kinds of things that people can experience in so many different ways, including as theme park attractions. See, now we need to just get Disney to build a permanent Imagineering exhibit, and then they can have your score typed in throughout that space. <laughs> there you go. It would be the the Disney Imagineering story, the ride or something, right? <laughs> that would be quite uh, meta, I guess you could say. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say that. I mean, it's almost like... Uh... Maybe they have. Maybe they do it via like a simulator or something, or or maybe at a future D twenty three expo, or they just have some sort of virtual reality experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was so fun to work on the Imagineering story, and that's why I'm so glad that's out there. Is because people love these rides and they love the park, and they just want to see everybody that you know everything that went into to the making of them. So I'm I'm very grateful that I've been able to experience that on, on sort of both sides of it, having worked on that, that show. Yeah. <laughs> so at, at this point in your career, you're obviously established, but at the same point, a, a continued learner, what does your continued education and development as an orchestrator look like? And also in concert with that at times you know, being a conductor or composer, how, how do you make sense of that as you progress in your career? Yeah, I, I feel like I never, like I said before, I never stop learning. So um, the way that I'll, I'll learn is exactly how I've, I've always learned, which is if I'm not, if it's not from, you know, 
direct experience working on a project and learning how to do something better the next time. It's listening to other people's music and other projects that I didn't work on and, and wondering, hmm, how did they do that? Right. And, and trying to sort of be analytical and, and think about what their process must have been like, or it's doing score study, like, um, you know, getting a full score of either a piece of classical music that I'm listening to or any kind of music, uh, not just classical, that, that I'm listening to and enjoying and sort of trying to see and understand how it was put together. One of the things that I've been really enjoying over the last couple of years that a lot of people have started doing on YouTube is they've been putting out these score analysis videos where they they put out a reduction of the music and they sync it with the scene from the movie that it's scoring. And you can kind of approach it on all different kinds of levels of, in terms of how it's been put together, either orchestration wise, music theory wise, film music wise, how the music's working with the film. Um, I really enjoy those those videos and there's quite a bit of them out there now. So that's a, also a great way for me to learn. Yeah, so it it never stops the the process of learning. And also I've been, as you mentioned, you know, quite grateful that I've been able to continue composing um, alongside of my orchestration duties and also um, working as a conductor. Um, maybe not um, having orchestrated a project, I might be getting brought in as, as just a conductor for the scoring sessions, which is something that's happened to me quite a bit recently and never thought that I would get into the world of just conducting, but it's something you learn when you're studying music and I've played in orchestras for many years. So I know what the, the job of a conductor is and, and what the process of conducting is and what it means. So it's certainly something that I can do and really enjoy doing. And that's another way to learn because there, I haven't worked on the project necessarily as an orchestrator or as a composer, but I'm working with orchestrators and working with composers and seeing what their process is like. And that's a learning experience for me too. So it comes from many different directions. And it's something that I'm really grateful that I get to continue learning and learning how to do things better. And um, I really hope that that never ends, that process. Awesome. And if memory serves me right, were you a, you were a conductor for the Willow series on Disney mm -hmm. Plus? Yep, I was oh. one of the conductors on, on Willow for uh, Disney Plus and Lucasfilm, which is another, speaking of, you know, great projects to work on that are sequels, essentially sequels to movies that I really enjoyed and looked up to and admired growing up. The original Willow score by James Horner is such a important score for me and informing who I was as, you know, a young musician and composer. Um, so to, to be able to work on that in some capacity and for that, it was just as a conductor. Um, was was really exciting and working with um, on that it would have been James Newton Howard and Xander Rodinsky who wrote the score and their orchestrators um, working with them was a huge learning experience and and really fun because I love Willow. <laughs> See, now I feel like you've almost hit. I think you have hit the four quadrants or five quadrants of Disney. You've done Disney, Pixar, Lucasfilms uh marvel and fox so yeah, exactly i do everything <laughs> it's it's quite fun and, and incredible to think about how the just amount of 
projects that I've worked on over the last five years since we've last talked. Yeah. And and also non-Disney projects too, right? Like this is a Disney podcast, but want to acknowledge you're you're tied with uh with other projects like um the Super Mario Bros. movie, mm-hmm. American fiction, um, others as well, critical hits, box office hits. Mm-hmm. Um so it sounds like this is also a space where your reach has also widened um as more years have elapsed too. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. I think that one of the big things that that changed for me over the last five years was I started all of a sudden working and collaborating with so many different composers and and different people beyond the people that I had begun my career with. And um, uh, some of those were Disney projects and some of those were non-Disney projects. And I'm just so grateful and happy to be able to do do them all because there's a lot of great uh, content out there. And Um, I mean, for instance, like working on the Batman, which is obviously not a a Disney project, but was uh, uh, um, the original, you know, Batman series, um, also animated, but also the movies, the Tim Burton movies, you know, growing up with those too. just feel so lucky to be able to sort of continue this legacy of, of things that were important to me as a child and you know forming who i was as a musician and composer and to be able to do those and sort of continue that later in life is is really incredible to me constantly my dreams are coming true <laughs> yeah well then it's good that you're occasionally working for a company where that happens directly in their messaging uh dreams come true but uh, it makes me wonder what is on the horizon for you over the next year at least what you can announce i know what IMDB says, and I don't know what you're privy to share or not share. I know if with Michael Giacchino is on the horizon in a few months from now, among others. Yep, that's the project that we just finished scoring with him. So that's done, and it comes out a little bit later this year. That'll be really, really fun. That was for Paramount. Um, what else is happening? There's there's a lot of stuff that's in, in the works and in the mix. Um, I'm not sure how much of it's been announced yet, though. So I'm I'm not sure I should should say uh, all good or anything. There's there was probably some things on on IMDb that uh, are listed. Do you know, Brett, what those are? I could. I, I definitely caught if, and I know that that got a big push um, with a, a recent uh, was it the Super Bowl spot? Um, oh so, right, yes, yeah. So yeah, more people are are definitely aware of that now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, oh, Harold and the Purple Crayon. That's another one that I. Um, that I conducted. Um, with Disney, I'm not sure. I know that they have a bunch of things in development and that we're, we're planning to do. So, um, but for the announcements of those, I think we'll have to, we'll probably wait until they, they are announced um, for certain. Yeah. For sure. No, that makes complete sense. And mm-hmm. I guess to wrap up, Jeff, where and how can listeners follow your work? maybe every streaming platform since your work is probably on every streaming platform. (laughs) That's true. Yes. I have a lot of music that's out there streaming that you can listen. Um, uh, You can follow me uh, through, uh, I'm always um, constantly updating my website, jeffkrickamusic.com. And uh, if you want to ever reach out to me, uh, there's contact on there, a way to contact me also through Facebook. Um, I'm I'm on Facebook. If you'd like to, to reach out to me, reach out to me through there. Uh, so that's, that's, uh, 
It's never, never difficult if, if anybody wants to ask me a question about a project I've worked on or ask for advice if you're a young composer or you know, thinking about starting a career in, in music or film music, um, I'm happy to, to, to speak to anyone and everyone. Well, much appreciate your time, Jeff. Um, continued su success to you. It's been uh, really cool to, to follow what you've been up to and, and ultimately all the work that we've been able to glean uh, and, and listen to on our own from Imagineering Story to the Marvels and, and much more. So thank you again for joining me today. Yeah, thank you, Brett. Thanks again for joining me on another episode of Notably Disney. I invite you to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. Follow me on Twitter at bnachmanreports. That's B-N-A-C-H-M-A-N reports. And be among the first to find out about the release of new episodes. I also encourage you to send me an email to notablydisney at gmail.com regarding your thoughts of the show, as well as suggestions for content. So until we turn the page on another chapter, I'm Brett, and thanks for listening to Notably Disney. Notably, Disney is not affiliated with the Walt Disney Company or any of its subsidiaries. Consequently, the perspectives and opinions expressed by the host and guests are strictly theirs and do not represent the views of the Walt Disney Company and its employees. The main purpose of the Notably Disney podcast is to offer information and critiques about the Walt Disney Company.